These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, as Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who didn't know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and didn't do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, We Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I will never um, be a castaway on desert island discs, but if I were, I think I would choose as one of my tracks uh, one of the songs from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Nothing having a very uh, finely tuned musical ear, I like. Those are the sort of songs that I find myself humming for days on end afterwards. They're brilliant. Benjamin Calypso, you remember that one? Just brilliant. Many people, because of that musical, many people who've never read Genesis are familiar with the final chapters of the book of Genesis because of that. Joseph uh, is Jacob's youngest son, as you remember. 
He's sold to slavery in Egypt. Uh, he ends up as effectively as the prime minister of the country. And the story goes on and the book ends with the death of Joseph. So at the start of the book of Exodus, as we've heard read to us, uh, this, this picks up the story and informs us that Jacob's extended family who are now in Egypt number 70 in all. 70 of them are now in Egypt. And then between verse 6 and verse 7, there's a giant leap forward in time. And we move into effectively what is a new chapter in God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Remember back in Genesis 12, God made this covenant with Abraham that he would become, that his, his descendants would multiply and that he would become a great nation and all nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Verse 7 actually uses the same word. They multiplied greatly just as God had promised to Abraham. But then their future is immediately thrown into jeopardy yet again as a new king who did not know about Joseph comes to power. Both sides in the recent referendum used the politics of fear. And we discover in this story in Exodus 1 that it's nothing new. It's been around for at least 3,000 years. The new king told the people that they should fear these immigrants. They're taking your jobs, they're overwhelming your hospitals, the children are filling your schools, and worst of all, some of them might even be terrorists. We need to get our country back, I hear him cry. Maybe we need to build a wall, prevent any more from getting in. Well, okay, I have got a bit carried away, but that's sort of what he said, isn't it? And as people listened to the, to the fear propaganda, it can be very effective. And we're told that the Egyptians feared the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Of course, not being a Democrat, Pharaoh decided not to have a referendum on the issue, but came up with a cunning and a ruthless plan. And at that point, my two heroes, Shifra and Pua, enter the story. Two women, midwives from the lowest economic and social strata of society, face to face with the most powerful man in the world. Just imagine the scene. Maybe just slightly what drew me to this story was when we were living in southwest Uganda, all through the local villages, there were what we called or what were called traditional birth attendants. And these uh, women had knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation and assisted at childbirth. And we had various projects to kind of build on the, on the huge amount of knowledge that they had. I'm sure many of you have visited Egypt and you've gone out to the pyramids at Giza, visited the Sphinx. Maybe you've gone up to the Karnak Temple at uh, Luxor. And when we visited on our way back from Uganda on one occasion and went out to, to Giza, one of the things that perplexed me was why that, that it's never mentioned in the book of Exodus. 
never gets a mention. All these amazing buildings and constructions don't get a mention. And while the book of Exodus does not set out to give us a history of Egypt, the biblical writers seem to completely ignore the spectacular achievements of men and women. They're not in the slightest interested in arrogant displays of ego. The biblical writers are interested in God. And they tell us time and time again how God is to be found working in and through human history in the most unremarkable places and through the most unremarkable, unlikely people. World leaders are minor players in the biblical way of writing and participating in history. So two obscure immigrant Hebrew women face to face with Pharaoh. But they are named because in the biblical story they're not obscure. Pharaoh, probably the most powerful man in the world, is not even dignified with a personal name. As I pondered this story, one of the features that I found most striking is the absence of drama. You could so embellish the story. I mean, you could make a Hollywood movie out of this. Two women from the margins, brought before the most powerful man in the world, given an instruction to kill the male Hebrew babies, But the story is remarkable for the absence of drama because this is all it says. They did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. Couldn't be less dramatic. They just didn't do it. Even though the consequences would quite likely have been death. So why did they ignore the order? Why did they not do it? Well, yet again, without fanfare, the story simply says... The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. They feared God. It's as if the writer is saying, what else would they do? They feared God. Hebrew and biblical scholars tell us that we must avoid looking up the meaning of fear and looking up the meaning of God and trying to put them together into some sort of definition of what the fear of God means. And if you look up, there's all sorts of ways that people have tried to uh, define what the fear of God means, and most of them saying broadly similar things. Let me just uh, tell you one that I find a definition of the fear of God that I find very helpful. It is this. To live in the fear of God means living our lives in the presence of God, moment by moment, with all the awe, obedience, humility, love, and courage that such living deserves. Shall I repeat that? To live in the fear of God means living our lives in the presence of God, moment by moment, 
with all the awe, obedience, humility, love, and courage that such living requires. So let's be clear, God is not calling us to a life of fear. In fact, in Psalm 34, David um, contrasts his own fears with the fear of the Lord. To be delivered from our fears is to embrace the fear of the Lord. To be delivered from our fears is to embrace the fear of the Lord. My impression is that the writer is trying to convey that this wasn't, uh, these women just didn't find themselves before the king and suddenly fear God. They, they were women who lived their lives, their ordinary daily lives in the fear of the Lord. So that when the day of testing came, they knew instinctively how a God-fearing person should respond to the king even at the consequence of their own life. Shifra and Pure, two named women from the margins of society, remind us that the work of building God's kingdom is rooted in the personal and in the ordinary. Do you ever feel insignificant? I do. So many people around doing terribly important things. So many people very gifted. And then there's me. Nothing remarkable. The biblical narrative tells us that we're in good company. Shifra and Pure are not people of influence. They're not people of power. In fact, they're powerless. They had no contacts in high places. They didn't mix with the movers and shakers of Egyptian society. In fact, we have no evidence that their courageous acts were ever even made public. Yet their deeds are made known. Their names are known to God. And God blesses them. And their names are remembered. While the king of Egypt in all his pomp and splendor remains forever nameless. Of course this is a recurring feature of the story of God's salvation, isn't it? A couple of weeks ago Mike spoke about David. And and, uh, we heard that passage from Samuel where Samuel follows God's instruction to anoint a son of Jesse. And uh, you remember that the seven sons are paraded in front of Samuel, all fine-looking men, and they're perplexed because not one of them is the right individual. And then uh, Jesse says to Samuel, and and the literal translation of what he says to Samuel is this, I still have the runt. I still have the runt, is quite literally what he says. The one out on the hills tending the flock. The insignificant one. In human terms, the most insignificant. Yet God's anointed. And the passage says those famous words, the Lord sees. Not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
And there are many other examples throughout the story of Israel and into the New Testament. Of course, Matthew begins, just like Exodus, with names, a genealogy that continues to the birth of Jesus in a remote outpost of the Roman Empire. The courage of Shifra and Pua ensure that the sons of Israel survived, and as a result, a son of Israel was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And by human standards, Jesus' life and ministry was remarkable for its ordinariness, rooted in the immediate and the local. You remember the occasion the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, looked at him dismissively and said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man, not even using his name. And Paul says in Corinthians, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when God chose you. Not many of you were considered wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you belonged to important families. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We need to be constantly reminded of this in a celebrity culture, in a culture, in a society where networking, the right contacts is so important. God's work is grounded in the personal and the ordinary. Let's return to the fear of the Lord. We live in a complex and fast-changing world. The number of, you don't need me to remind you that the number of significant national and international events of the last few months in particular has been breathtaking, and many of them very shocking too. We live in a society with increasing disappointment, anger, fear, resentment, and blame. In a recent very insightful article, Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs comments that people are responding to that anger and fear by taking refuge in magical thinking, which he says today takes one of four forms, the far right, the far left, religious extremism, and aggressive secularism. He goes on to say the far right seeks a return to a golden past that never was. The far left seeks a utopian future that never will be. Religious extremists believe that you can bring salvation by terror. And aggressive secularists believe that if you get rid of religion, you will, there will be peace. All, as Jonathan says, fantasies, and yet all on the increase. And in such turbulent and confusing times, it seems to me there's an ever-increasing in need for us to be reminded and for our children and grandchildren to be taught where solid ground is to be found, which path to follow through the mist. What do we need to see us through these times? To that question, the Bible offers one answer, and that is wisdom. 
Job, in chapter 28, issues a call to rediscover wisdom, the wisdom that we need for the sort of times that we live in. Where shall wisdom be found, he starts. And he goes on, you can dig for gold, you can troll the sea for pearls, you can buy coral, crystal, jewels with money, but you cannot buy wisdom that way. So where is it to be found? Job reaches the end of his poem at the end of the chapter and declares, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To grow up in this part of the world for most of our young people provides the most amazing opportunities to aspire, to achieve, to excel academically in the arts and sport, in careers, and perhaps later in business. Yet, of what value is it if it is not built on the foundation of the fear of the Lord? Proverbs says, sell everything and buy wisdom. Sell everything. It's that important. Sell everything and buy wisdom. And later it says, it is much better to get wisdom than gold. Shifra and Pua grew up and learned to fear God among a God-fearing people. And my prayer is that this story may inspire us both to model and to teach what it means to be truly a God-fearing people. So that when the day of testing comes for our young people, for ourselves, we, they, will instinctively do what is right, even if wealth, career, promotion, and dare I say it, our lives are at stake. And we do it because we've learnt in the ordinariness of daily living what it means to live in the presence of God. The God not only of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that Shifra and Pua feared, but to those names are added the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrew speaks of. And we're called to live in the presence of a God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the God that we're called to live in the presence of, moment by moment, with all the awe, obedience, humility, love, and courage that such living requires. I suppose really what this is is a call back to basics. A call to check that we're on the right path. 
that we're on solid ground, that we're following the right bearing. No matter how long we've been on the Christian journey, it is so easy to lose our way, to stray off the path. We need God's Spirit. We need each other. We need to meet together like this. We need wisdom. We need the fear of the Lord, moment by moment, day by day. It is so important that Proverbs says, sell everything you have and buy wisdom. It is that important. May God help us to follow that path for his name's sake.